Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each week, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Amina Payne. We, of course, got connected on Twitter. She is an online instructor doing other things in the online world with online education. I've gone, I've watched her videos in which she's talking about, hey, I do this in my classroom with video feedback. I didn't ask her that on this paper, but I on the set of questions I sent her, but I am going to get into that. And we're going to talk about uh, online learning and what does it look like and what does it mean for the future? So for those who'll be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify, will you please introduce yourself, Amina? Sure, Dr. Will. Thanks for having me. My name's Amina, as you already mentioned, and I'm a transnational academic. I am from Illinois, from Chicago, went to high school in Champaign-Urbana, and about seven years ago, came over to Australia, Melbourne in particular, where I really um, started my academic career. And I have been working online as a higher ed and a vocational education instructor in the disciplines of business and education um, prior to the pandemic. So um, yeah, I've, I've seen how, how the shift um, to online learning has occurred and, and have a unique position in being in that realm prior to COVID. Awesome, my wife is from Illinois. Oh, get out. Yeah. Where in Illinois is she from? Cicero. Okay, yep, I'm familiar with Cicero. Yep, yep, she yeah. went to Knox. Okay, yeah, right, cool. Yes. Oh, man, I look forward to getting back, I gotta say. I really, <laughs> I, I never thought I would miss it. I mean, I usually go back once a year, but um, yeah, I gotta say I miss I, I miss those cornfields, I guess. <laughs> wow, wow. And that's one of the things that people who are not familiar, like you've never, you never have traveled, right? They don't know. When it comes to places like Massachusetts and Illinois and New York, outside of New York City, that's what you got is <laughs> small town and cornfields. Outside of Chicago, that's what you got, right? Yeah. When you leave, uh, even Massachusetts, once you get out of Boston itself, and you're out there near Amherst and all those other places, you got the same thing of small town, woods, and all the other stuff. Yeah, uh, woods, cows, corn. <laughs> yeah, it just, you know, because sometimes people think, oh, Massachusetts, they think of Boston, but they don't think you get out of that bad boy, and all of a sudden, it looks like Mississippi or any other place, because they, they're like, what is all this grass like, right? Because I didn't know until... We were taking some kids uh, from Boston uh, to SUNY uh, on a college trip and we're driving and we're getting there and I'm just looking and I'm like, what is all this grass land all around me? I said, this just looks like my home state. It's just cold. It's different. Uh, so I want, before I get into this, I want to ask you this because on your Twitter bio, you say that you are 
an analog girl living in a digital world. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> well, of course, that's an ode to um, an Erica Badu song, um, which always really, I just love, you know, that song in general. And I felt that it's actually really relevant to what I do in my online learning environment, where you have to take these analog, these interactions um, and try to, these social connections, human, uh, human connections, and you have to replicate or rather recreate um, them in the digital environment. And so for me, um, not only, you know, beyond the song, I felt that, re that really suits what I try to do. Wow. So I'm always curious as to how people got to where they are. So what did you think you'll be doing when you were growing up? And how did you find yourself in education? My, my path has been really, really nonlinear. When I was very young, um, I played a lot of tennis. I was on a Division I tennis scholarship. And um, I guess just career-wise, though, I, I thought I would go into maybe forensic science. I was always very interested in that. But um, my career, or rather my education, took me down a business pathway. And I studied, um, I got a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Marketing. And then I realized after working in that environment that it really wasn't what I was passionate about. Um, I was good at it, but it wasn't really interesting to me. So why just do something? I mean, look, sometimes you have to just do something for the check, right? And until you get to a point where you're like, look, this is not bringing me any joy. And um, yeah, so I kind of fell into in, into education and realized that this is um, this is really for me. And I think in hindsight, it actually, it, I'm glad that my trajectory was a little bit wonky because it really solidified um, my values and uh, and where I where I need to be. And I'm very confident that education is exactly where I need to be. So we have seen over the past year, uh, right about this time during spring break was when the world sort of officially shut down. And I remember getting the, the call from my boss at work saying, we're not coming back <laughs> after spring break. Uh, we're going to be going online and what programs do we have? And we need to start getting these materials and everything out to uh, prepare everyone for this transition. And everyone sort of freaked out. And there were a lot of people who were forced to go online who had never been online before. And then there were situations which upset me the most were... K through 12 schools that already had a learning management system, universities that had already had a learning management system, who had already been offering online degrees and online, online courses, but they never scaled anything. And all of a sudden, people are just freaking out, like, what, what, what are we supposed to be, be doing? And all of a sudden, online education, online learning was thrown to the fore, forefront everywhere. What would you say is the biggest misconceptions of online learning and what actually drew you to that online environment? 
I think, you know, what you mentioned is, is really, is really important that, you know, emergency online learning, emergency remote learning is not the same as online learning and teaching, right? So throwing people into these environments and, and having, um, yeah, these emergency plans is not um, the same thing as having a deliberate curriculum design for the digital environment. And I think that that's where a lot of misconceptions, I think that's the foundation of a lot of the misconceptions for online learning. I think that there are some other um, sometimes misconceptions that counter each other that, you know, for example, that online learning is easier, that it requires less effort and commitment or that the quality is lower. Um, on the other hand, you know, people think that while there is digital literacy that is required, I think the misconception is that you have to be a tech genius to understand how to navigate and undertake an online course. If that's the case, the design is wrong. Um, I also think that uh, people, and what emergency online learning has done, unfortunately, often is replicate face-to-face -face instruction um, in the digital realm. And the problem with this is that the same mistakes that were made that are being made in the traditional education environment are being made in the digital environment as well. Mm. So, when we're looking at research and best practices to move people away from the this whole emergency i gotta get this done because something has to happen because what i'm hoping moving forward because so many universities and k-12 schools within the united states got a bunch of money from the federal government for COVID, and they bought the learning management system and they never had one they bought devices to where many of these schools and school districts who were not one-to-one, -one, they're one-to-one -one now, mm -hmm. right? So let's say in the fall, every teacher in the United States has had their double vaccine and they're ready to roll in terms of, hey, we're back like we were normally back, but you still got all this tech, right? You still got the learning management system that you've paid for. You still have all of these Chromebooks or PCs or Macs or whatever you have paid for. When we're looking at the current research about teaching online, right, the pedagogy, how does learning change when it goes online? What does it actually look like? So I, I talk about this in a recent article, and what I think what it looks like is there's a difference in, in presence. I think that in an online environment, you have to demonstrate, um, as an educator, a different type of presence. And I think for um, the K through 12 environment, there's a lot <laughs> that has been, uh, a lot of the uptake has just been uh, inequitable firstly. So I guess I just wanna step back and preface it by saying that I think that online learning is a luxury, right? You've, we've seen in the US uh, and, and here in Australia as well that accessibility is an issue. Having internet, you know, there've been issues with internet hotspots, um, you know, people not having internet in their homes or reliable enough internet, people not having access to laptops, you know, needing funding for Chromebooks. So I think that, you know, 
you need to set the stage and first understand that it, there's an accessibility issue um, that needs to be addressed. Now, when we come to the uh, the curriculum and the delivery and the you know the pedagogy, I think that as an educator, we cannot just expect students to, no matter what age they are, to have Zoom lessons um, for hours at a time. And I think, you know, there's been lots of talk about cameras on, and I think that's unrealistic as well. Um, so I think, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think that as an educator, right, you, you do need to be equipped. And, and look, the onus isn't always on the educator. I think that governments and institutions need to support educators to be able to better support learners. But I think that a lot of um, institutions, and then it trickles down to maybe educators thinking this as well, is that you can simply just put your lectures online or you can you know, do the same things that you would do in face-to-face -face instruction online. But that's not demonstrating um, care or um, several types of presence that I think are really important for new ways of thinking about support, interaction, and engagement between educators, between students, and, be and between uh, peers. Mm. I hope that. And I, I earned my graduate degrees from, from Capella University, an online uh, university. So I came into this well, last year with real excitement because honestly, I was starting to get bored with my job because it was just it just felt like we weren't going anywhere and we had all of this tech and now we had a new mandate so I was like yeah let's do this thing so I was very comfortable with the shift with the change you know you have this experience in higher education and as we are looking at the shift of higher ed particularly you know there are people now who have been for the past few years before COVID had already been talking about the costs of a college education. Is it worth it? And all of a sudden when the pandemic hit and a lot of universities closed their doors and you had people who were maybe paying $40,000 a year to go to NYU and they were like, what am I paying you $40,000 a year to go online uh, for and universities trying to figure out how do we work this? How do we do this within a certain type of cost and really meet the demands of, uh, of students? Where do you see online learning actually coming into play in higher ed, not only now, but as we look past the pandemic? Yeah, well, as someone who's been um, teaching online prior to the pandemic and also learning online prior to the pandemic and during it, um, I feel like I've been in a really unique situation to or position to see teaching done well um, that's not in a state of emergency. And I feel that when it's done well, right, you see the value in, um, in, in what you're learning. Like I know that my learning materials, right? Whilst I could probably find some concepts online, I, I personally, I, I'm not, I wouldn't learn in a face-to-face -face environment anymore. It's just, it's not convenient for me to go onto a campus and 
you know, sit in a lecture. I really like being able to access things on my own time, um, listen to a recorded lecture or view, you know, view some slides prior to a live lecture. So I think that there's a lot of value in that. I, I feel like as well, we have to, educators should be open to students contacting them. So whereas maybe in a traditional environment, you've got set office hours, but in the online environment, there should be a more fluid, um, more fluid communication. And I think that in higher education and, you know, universities, um, the sh there's a shift that's also occurring simultaneously as we're shifting to digital as well, where there's less of this kind of uh, mechanical, there's less of this domineering professor um, view. And I think that educators are becoming more affiliates and students are becoming co-creators of knowledge as well. And I think that the online environment is really, I hope um, that's, I mean, what I've seen is that it's really shifting these support networks and, and students are really engaging in, in different ways with, with their peers, um, having online study groups, you know, even using multimedia to engage in humor and storytelling. And so I, I, do, I do think that there is a lot of um, unique aspects um, to, the, to, to the online environment. I mean, I've connected just, you know, with people from all over the world that I wouldn't have necessarily been able to do if I were, you know, when you're in a face-to-face -face class. Mm -hmm. And how does the classroom look like when it can be accessed via any internet connected device? Because you just mentioned about how professors in terms of readjusting their idea about their roles and their responsibilities and how they interact with students. But even when you look at the learning, whereas in a face-to-face, -face, you know, I, I'll go to this class from let's say nine to 11, Monday and Tuesday. But when that same class goes online, even if let's say there's a, synchronous lecture piece to it the asynchronous part i'm on that class i can go to it at any time that i want to right i i and, and if i want to be on a tablet on a train somewhere i can pop in and read or watch videos or lectures etc when that learning environment becomes more of an a, a 24 hour experience so to speak what does that actually do to the classroom? I think it does a couple of key things um, and there's some negatives and some positives with that. So firstly, um, my cohort that I teach are mature age learners. So I guess my perspective is coming at, at university online teaching from that perspective. And all, you know, my students um, come from various equity cohorts. Um, so not just mature age learners, but maybe low socioeconomic backgrounds indigenous students, um, et cetera. And so they often have full-time jobs and care responsibilities. So I think that a really excellent benefit is that, you know, they can be, you know, doing something with their kids or, you know, setting their kids up for something or homeschooling, um, but also listening to a podcast um, from their learning materials or they could be cooking or 
commuting to work and they have access to their learning materials. In terms of uh, 20, that 24 hour access, right, that you mentioned, I think that what it can look like for educators, right, is like always, is always working. So I think that it's really important to set um, boundaries still of when you might be online and available. For example, I usually um, will tell my students, you know, I'm generally online, you know, I'm always checking like pretty much every day, every other day, but I might specifically have Thursdays um, offline. And so I think that just making your communicating, you know, when you are available, right? But the great thing about the online environment is that if someone has a question, right, they don't necessarily have to wait for you to, you know, you as an educator to respond. They can post in a discussion forum and maybe their peer might know the answer. And so I think that that's um, a real strength in the online environment and how it's really shifting, again, students to co-create and to engage with each other. And it, it hopefully will take some maybe that's the wrong term pressure, I guess, off the educator, but just knowing that students are there for each other. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think that, you know, there, there is a fine, there's a delicate balance of, you know, of overwork and, and also, um, yeah, just setting these boundaries of like when you're gonna check your discussion forums or when you're gonna, you know, how you're gonna communicate with your students. But I think that having a stream of communication is really, really important. And it's even more, um, possible online, I feel. So the majority of people I'm going to gather who enter doctoral programs are thinking, I'm going to be teaching in a traditional face-to-face classroom. And many of mm-hmm. them are trained as such, right? They, they go through uh, the research process. They can help with grants. And for those who become TAs, they're teaching normally in a face-to-face a classroom or lecture hall. And now as we are seeing less and less full-time uh, positions available, we've seen a lot more adjunct positions available. And we are seeing more and more universities go online. And it's one of those things to where when I have, when I try to talk to, to people and I say, listen, when Harvard when Harvard says we're going to have these full time online MBAs, when Boston University says, "Hey, we're going to create a twenty four thousand online MBA program," these are Ivy League schools. When they do that, watch out because everybody else is going to jump into the game, and so now you're going to be seeing a lot of people who may have in the beginning said, hey, I want to be a university professor. You know, I want to wear the the patches on on my jacket. You know, I want to have these discussions in these halls. But now the classroom is different. More than likely, I may be teaching in an online class or at an online university. Mm -hmm. What are some of the skills that are needed for someone to teach online? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I also just want to acknowledge, you know, the point that you made about the casualization of teaching, because I 
that's a whole nother. <laughs> I love, I love that discussion, but I think that's also a really important um, aspect of what's kind of happening in education where, yeah, you see, like you said, you see less positions, um, tenure track positions and more of these casual um, positions, which I think is very interesting and very much by design. Um, or, you know, it's very deliberate, but um, in terms of some of the key um, characteristics of online instructors, this is actually something I'm, I'm um, seeking to explore in my current research. But I think a lot of it um, has to do with some relational aspects. Um, so emotional and social like interconnectedness, which makes people connect um, in a digital realm. So I think some of those things might be empathy, um, innovation, you know, a willingness to use, um, to demonstrate uh, these various types of teacher presence, which are cognitive um, and, and social as well. And I think that you really need to be open to understanding your learners. Um, I think that there's a huge, there's been a huge shift um, as well when, when we've gone online into students really wanting a personalized experience. Uh, that I think this, a like a mechanical um, and personal experience has kind of been the, the norm in a brick and mortar education. And I think that when we shift online, we really do need to make the time um, and institutions need to enable educators to be able to make the time to understand their students' situations. Um, I think that an ability to be able to use learner analytics is really important. Um, for example, I can see you know, what students of mine are least engaged and most engaged. I can see, you know, if there's a really important lecture that I know will help them build up their summative assessment, I can see who's accessed that and, and when. Um, and so I might nudge them and those who haven't accessed it and said, oh, hey, you know, make sure you, you listen to this, um, you know, part of this lecture um, or this podcast, because it will really assist you. So I think that as an educator, right, you have access to all, all this information that you don't necessarily have access to. You don't know what your, you know, um, students are reading in a face-to-face -face classroom necessarily. You also don't know. Um, I also think that being said that it's really important to understand that not everyone may be an active participant. And I think that that's a great insight to have. You know, you might have lots of students posting online, but you might have students that are lurkers as well. And, and I don't think that that is a bad thing. Um, and so you might think, oh, you know, John has, is, it might be disengaged, but actually they're going through the modules. Um, so I think that there's a shift in the online environment of what participation looks like. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, Teachers as well, another characteristic that is important is, um, some, is, is literacy. So, you know, that digital literacy, I think feedback literacy, which is what I'm actually researching is increasingly important. Um, I think we're shifting away from heavy, te you know, text heavy um, environments into more multimedia. Um, and I, an aspect that is of particular interest to me is, um, as you are aware, is the feedback the audiovisual feedback. And I 
I, I've seen great results with, with that. So I think that you can still have a connection. And, and um, I think that all of these things that students prefer are, are characteristics that educators need to build into their own teaching repertoire. Technology is just a tool, right? It doesn't make up for bad um, instruction. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned this in the introduction. And again, you know, um, I've been to your Vimeo and watched the videos and you, how did you get started with actually giving that video and audio feedback to students? Because when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. It, it makes sense that you would do it in an online environment, but not every person who teaches online does that. How did you get started with that? Yeah, sure. So I was I got started through when I undertook my graduate certificate of learning and teaching at Swinburne. I had a instructor who provided me with audiovisual feedback and I had never received that before. And I thought it was incredible. Um, he provided his feedback as uh, through Vimeo and his feedback was slightly different to how I provide mine. Um, he talked kind of as, you know, he recorded himself tell, telling me various aspects about what he thought about my assignment. I thought it was incredible, but I wanted to do it a little bit differently. So what I actually do is, um, so on my Vimeo, what you've seen is me just communicating, you know, doing a weekly overview with my students. But when I get feedback on their assignments, I record it through a screencast. So I screencast their work and I talk through it. So they don't actually see me, um, my face, because I don't think that's important. I think it's important for them to see their work as I um, annotate it and, and walk through and give them a summary of feeding forward, um, how they can improve their work for the future. So I was really inspired by my, uh, my instructor in my grad cert course. And that was, it was just a, such an innovative way of marking an assignment that I wanted to, to use. Wow, wow. So you're an online in, in, instructor. And what I am curious is when students are in this environment, particularly for the first time, right? What are some of the gaps that you are seeing from them? Because I've watched several online videos on, on YouTube, like day in the life of, of an online student, like these students who, because of the pandemic, they're online and never expected to do that. And even on Twitter, you would see students, students complaining about this sucks. Now I can't vouch for what their professor is doing or isn't doing, but I, but when that student is in an online environment, how does their role change? What mm -hmm. gaps are you seeing in terms of their participation, the way they're showing up, the way they should be a participant in a class? With my particular cohort, which is, um, again, mature age students that are coming in after not having studied for sometimes 20, 20 years, um, and, you know, commencing university, the gaps that I'm seeing are, you know, I, 
I wouldn't even frame them as gaps, really. I just think that I think they're really stepping stones, right? They're bringing in so much life experience, but they are nervous and unsure of their own abilities to um, conduct research online. You know, many of them have not used an online library, haven't written an academic essay. So I think that there's just a lot of um, insecurity and uncertainty about studying again. Also, there is uh, some digital literacy required and, you know, there's various things that you have to access. You know, you might have your learning management system, then you have a whole nother hub for, you know, your financial aspect, aspect of your course. So there's a lot of different, I, I guess, portals um, that students need to learn to navigate. And I think that um, as soon as you can get students access to their units, so often in the, in the units that I teach, um, and, and the institution that I teach at, we give students early access, which then gets them access to um, modules to learn how to navigate the online environment. So, you know, a few weeks prior to the unit actually even opening, they've got access to these modules so they can feel more confident in navigation. So I feel that, you know, the skills, um, the skill sets are there. It's just um, an uncertainty of, of, of what's expected of them. I think how students um, are showing up or how, what's, you know, what's changing is I hope um, in my particular cohort is to let them know that, you know, maybe you haven't studied for 15, 20 years and that's okay. You still have experience, your life experience is important and it is transferable to the academic environment. And so I think that that is something that is important to, to demonstrate to students that you can still make a contribution and still engage in academia um, despite not feeling like you're academic enough, you know? Um, yeah, so I think that that's, an important aspect for educators to, to bring to students, especially if they're from particular equity groups. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I have experienced even in my own job is when we're, you know, you're launching the learning management system and I'm trying to, you know, show them okay, how do you run through your lesson line? And in doing that, you know, we have, you know, Cami, we have Nearpod, we have these other tools that the district or, or programs the district have paid for and all of those things. And, you know, some teachers are like, you know, like the matrix, they're like, oh my gosh, all these tools are, are, are coming at me. And for some of them, they feel overwhelmed. They don't feel comfortable because for them, those, that's a distraction. It's not teaching, right? It's not learning. It's, 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 it's video game. It's play, right? Mm -hmm. um, how can teachers, you know, use multimedia, computer-based instruction, use tools like Nearpod to create a more dynamic learning experience for their students? Yeah, so that's, that's a, it's a lot, right? Like that sounds like a lot. I don't use those tools. I, 
Um, I, the tools that I use actually are free. And, um, you know, I use Giphy, for example, to, in, to insert memes in, in, you know, multimedia. I might use Unsplash to, um, to use some images or, you know, just record a, a really casual video. Um, I use Screencast-O-Matic to, you know, to give that feedback. Again, these are tools that are available for free and required very little to no um, learning curve. Um, so I think that, as you mentioned, you know, the tools, there's so many tools out there and the tools don't make teaching great. It's the instruction. And I think that there, there is a lot of emphasis um, lately on technology and, and that's, that's great. You know, technology has always existed as a disruptor, but I think that um, institutions need to be really mindful of what they're expecting of their educators because the, the workload has increased. And then now you're telling, you know, educators, okay, now you have to learn this new tool um, and probably not paying them to, <laughs> to learn it. Um, so I think that we need to, you know, less is, less is more. You can still, you know, it doesn't have to be radical, you know, the use of multimedia it doesn't have to be difficult. There are, there, again, there are tools out there that are free, that are easy, um, that, that educators can use. It does not have to be this hard. And I think that that's where there's a lot of resistance in using technology because oftentimes we are, we're seeing, you know, we're looking at a tool and we're like, oh my gosh, that's too much. I don't want to do that. But um, yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> Well, for, for me, you know, is one. Of, I always try to pare and scale things down for teachers, but if we pay for it, that's out of my hands, right? And it's something that, look, it is what it is. But yeah. I, I try to work with teachers in understanding that you have to understand how to teach with these tools and look at your strengths and look at your students and be able to create a workflow and create your own recipe, just like you would in a face-to-face -face environment. And once you're able to quote unquote, start cooking, all of this makes sense. But if you don't sit down and you don't practice it, you don't work it, you don't plan, you don't look at it as, how can I make all of this fit and create something that works for you? You will always, you know, have problems when you duck at it. Or if you are like, well, my, you know, central office said this, so I'm going to do this just so they can stop running their mouth. But that doesn't do you any good. And that doesn't do their students any good. And you're not, you know, you're not learning. And one of the things that I try to tell teachers is, forget me, forget the district. You're, you should not learn this stuff because I said so. You really need to learn this stuff for you yeah. because you're a professional educator. This stuff isn't going anywhere. So whether you teach here or you teach somewhere else, the expectation will be that you are capable of of teaching in a digital environment and that you should take that ownership 
of understanding what's going on and figuring out again what works well with you and what works well with your students? Absolutely. That's exactly what I feel as well. That's the approach that I took when I implemented this audiovisual feedback. No one in my institution um, was doing that. And I thought of it from a bottom up approach. I thought, you know, what what are my students, what am I hearing and observing from my students that can make my practice better? How can I connect with my students and help them feed forward into future work? Because um, all this text heavy stuff, it's just not, it's, it's a cognitive overload. So what can we do? What can I do better? So I took that initiative. So like you said, I think that there is some initiative that does need to be taken, but oftentimes um, what we what we're seeing is like this top-down approach and education um, institutions saying, "Oh, you have to use this tool." But sometimes we really need to think about, well, what you know, what are the students? I mean, the students won't know necessarily what tools, but what are the students saying? What are we observing? And then, what tools can get us there? Um, and how can our instruction be shifted? to better utilize, to better mobilize these tools to improve the student experience. And like you said, I think some, you know, institutions will buy, uh, buy a software, buy a product, and then they have this escalation of commitment, you know, where they have to use it because they've spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever the amount on it. And they're forcing um, educators to use certain things that are just not, Maybe it might be clunky, it might be too time intensive to use, and it just might it just be useless. Um, so I think that there needs to be some collaboration from, uh, from educators on what they need, what, what kind of support and time they need to learn things, uh, mixed with you know, this bottom-up approach of observing students and what they need. Um, also mixed with what you what you said about what educators need to bring to the table. They do need to innovate, they do need to um, you know, be open, but that's, I do get that that's hard to do when your workload has, has increased and there's so many pressures, um, during the pandemic. And I really do feel like the responsibility of good online learning design needs to come from, um, ultimately the institution. I think I'm seeing now that my institution has seen the, the good work that, um, that this innovation has brought, and not just the innovation of you know audiovisual feedback, but using multimedia and using videos, and now they're kind of they're you know it's shifting, and they're like oh like tell tell us <laughs> tell us more. Um, so I think that you know as an educator as well, you can you can impact change from the bottom up as well. It doesn't always have to be the institution telling you you know what to do. So. You know, I'm all into the podcast. I'm on YouTube. Yeah. I'm consuming all this information and I'm seeing, you know, all of this sort of talk and uh, conjecture around what is the future of education and mm. where will things be going you know, five to, you know, years or beyond. Uh, the late, you know, Dr. Christensen, you know, used to get himself in a little trouble when he told people that, hey, 50% of the, 
of American universities because of technology were going to be, they're going to die because there was no way in the world with the democratization of information via technology, they could charge, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year for a degree. And we have already seen with the rising costs of college education, the lack of funding from the state or alumni, there are universities all across the United States have already, you know, shut their doors or they've, they've merged. Or you see a situation like uh, Purdue University, they get a, a new president in, he's seen the future, they purchase Kaplan and then they launch Purdue Global mm-hmm. to be able to offer more uh, access, but also to be able to compete uh, in this game. Where do you see online learning going within the next five to 10 years? I see online learning becoming more open. Um, I hope that fees will be um, slowly eradicated. That being said, educators, you know, we, you know, we also have to make a living, right? So that has to come from somewhere. So I, I'm not, um, I just, I think that education and uh, continued education should be free or significantly reduced from the cost of where it is. Everyone deserves to learn, in my opinion, and have access to quality education. So I would like to see yeah, education becoming more open. I think we're seeing that in, in research. Research is becoming more open. So to me, it's only logical that education will follow in the years to come. I also feel that education um, is becoming more accessible. We're already seeing huge shifts, um, huge increases in equity groups being able to access online education. We see in Australia, we've seen um, you know, increases of between, you know, 60 to 100% in equity groups like Indigenous students, um, students with disability, uh, rural and regional students, women, um, you know, all these equity groups that um, traditionally were excluded from education. So I think that this is all really important to be aware of because then this shifts our narratives and, um, you know, in the broader scheme of things, the more educated people we have from diverse backgrounds, the more of a tolerant society we are. I come from a very, I would classify myself as a, you know, progressive um, or liberal, as I guess John Dewey would say, um, liberal educators. So I believe that, yeah, the purpose of education is, is to, is so that people can make changes in society. And to me, that only happens when um, people, when all people have equal access to, mm-hmm. um, to education. So I would like to see um, education be made more financially accessible to, to all students. Mm. So before we go, what do you say to those educators who, who <laughs> and I saw this a lot when tw- on Twitter, teachers 
just boohooing teaching online, boohooing online education, talking about how it was, we got to get into this building because kids aren't learning. It's less quality, you know, and my push, first of all, I'm all in on education, uh, online learning. That's my favorite. But I also realize that some students don't do well in the online environment and some do. But what we do know is there are a lot of students who are being failed by traditional public education. And they show up every day, right? Pre-pandemic, they showed up every day. And you look at their test scores, and I'm not saying test scores are, are everything, but when you look at, let's say, the scores of, let's just say, Black and Brown students on literacy and math, and those scores are like 40% or below. Yep. So you can't get on Twitter and tell me that the traditional face-to-face classroom <laughs> is the gold standard when we know it's not. You can't get on Twitter or around your friends or whatever social media platform you on and just talk about how we got to get back in the building because we have a loss of learning. Oh, it's Dunstan. Yeah. <laughs> they came to your class every day and didn't learn. Yep. It's comfortable for you because that's what you know. That's what you want to do. But your kids were still failing. What do you say to those educators who think online learning is a fad? It, it, it's play. It's not real teaching. Well, I am going <laughs> to. Go ahead. Go ahead. Ooh, look, um, this is a, I see exactly what you are seeing. Um, especially I see a I've seen a lot of this pushback in the public school sector, unfortunately, um, from boards of education who are super eager to get students back into the classroom. Um, you know, especially, oh gosh, you know, I have a huge problem with educators who say things like this and then on the same, in the same breath are advocates for things like policing those same types, the same kids in schools. So yeah, I, I see a lot of cognitive dissonance um, in a lot of these, these particular educators that are sharing these perspectives. What I would say to them is that, look, they're, they're, they're missing an opportunity to really um, engage students in a way that they prefer. Right, social media is is huge, and I think that so being online, right, is a huge part of, especially you know, young people's um, lives, and I think that to force them into learning um, just because we learned or they learned a certain way is not being flexible. It's not being adaptable, and their way of thinking is a dying way of thinking. And they really need to get on board with um, and, and be in tune with the research that's happening and, um, and, and not just the research, but the anecdotal stories of students of all, um, of all ages. And I think that, yeah, unfortunately, the more educators that we have that are pushing back, the, the more students that are going to continue, continue to suffer and um, 
yeah, and not benefit from a, a learning environment that could be really transformative for them. Mm. I hear you. I hear you. I, I was, I was miffed to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to be like as polite <laughs> as possible, as diplomatic as possible, because I really, yeah, it really, it's really very frustrating to me. You know, it's changed. I think ultimately, you know, a lot of educators um, are comfortable in the way they've done things and they are resistant to change. That's just, it's not just educators, it's people. I think that's, you know, sometimes just natural for people to be resistant to change. And especially if they feel like, oh, this is going to inconvenience me. I have to learn a new thing. It comes, might stem from fear. It might stem from a lot of different things. But I think that, um, yeah, we have to move beyond that and really become more student-centered. Yes, we do, we do. And I, I need you people just to wake up because uh, <laughs> it's, what they need to understand is, again, we have crossed that threshold of, of digital disruption. We are not going back, okay? And you should not want to go back because again, your kids were failing anyway, but we're, we're done. Blockbuster has been dead for years, <laughs> right? We now see traditional companies like CBS and other companies creating their own streaming channels and their own streaming platforms. Now, these are companies who are on cable and satellite platforms, but they even see where digital is going. Yep. And they're moving forward. And, and as more degree programs are going online, again, Boston University has a 24,000 MBA program. 24,000 is unheard of, period. Number two, it is a Ivy League graduate MBA program. They're doing this. Everybody better watch out because the yeah. fact that they're doing this, that they're telling the whole world game over. And yeah. if you want to continue to be relevant, right, you literally have to get on, get on board, whether you're drugged, you know, kicking and screaming or you go with a smile on your face, that is entirely up to you. But the train has already left. Absolutely. Absolutely. Spot on. Awesome. Well, thank you, Amina, for coming on the show. Thanks, Dr. Will. It's really a pleasure. Awesome. We're going to release this episode very soon. Uh, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode will be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe. I need you to follow. I need you to share it. I like the stars. Hey, it looks good to see. But can I get some reviews? Can I get some comments? Because I'm trying to be found. And I'm also trying to get Oprah on the show. And I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Amina Payne, for coming on and dropping her gems. And I'd like to thank you for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. As always, people, invest in you 
ADU. Peace.